KGNU in Boulder. This is How on Earth. I'm Jill Shong. A man goes diving in a kelp forest off of the Western Cape of South Africa. He meets a female octopus. He slowly earns her trust. She allows him into her world and the experience changes him. He makes a hit film about it, My Octopus Teacher that shows us the wonders of the African sea forest and the cleverness of this amazing animal. Today, we talk with Roger Hanlon, a diving biologist who studies cephalopod behavior and their sensory systems. We'll review the movie with Roger and get some answers to our octopus questions. There's only one example through evolutionary time where some animal group took a a sharp left turn, and developed a really different body and a seemingly different brain structure, but is still producing complex behavior. And that is our wily cephalopods, the octopus, cuttlefish, and squid. That was Roger Hanlon discussing complex behavior of cephalopods, which is featured so prominently in the film My Octopus Teacher. There are two main characters in the film. The narrator, a South African filmmaker named Craig Foster, and the female octopus who lives under a rock in the middle of a kelp forest. The movie opens with an aerial view of Craig snorkeling along a rocky coastline in very rough Atlantic waters. It's one of the wildest, most scary places to swim on the planet. The narrator also swims without a wetsuit in water that gets as cold as 46 degrees Fahrenheit. He admits that it took a year of shivering every day to get acclimated to this. He also forgoes a scuba tank. Free diving with minimal equipment allows him to be more in tune with the subtle differences of the ocean. If you really want to get close to an environment like this, it helps tremendously to have no barrier to that environment. This sea forest is a wild place, and how the narrator chooses to interact with wild places is an important theme of the movie. So using just a snorkel and fins, he swims out, descends down into the three-dimensional sea forest, where he first finds the octopus. She is wearing an elaborate costume, having gathered up dozens of seashells with her eight arms. Using her suckers, she orients the shells just so, so that she looks like a rock on the sandy bottom. This is one of many examples of camouflage in complex behavior that we see in this film. The narrator gazes at this rock, not knowing what he's looking at, when suddenly... That is the sound of her dropping her shell costume and jetting off leaving him behind in clouds of octopus ink. The underwater acoustics, along with the cinematography, are quite breathtaking in many of these scenes. The narrator returns every day for a year to this exact same spot. It took going in every day to really get to know her environment better. He begins to think like an octopus so that he can find her better. She gets used to him being around, and it looks as though she is just as curious about him as he is about her. Without spoiling anything, there are many dramatic scenes in this documentary about her life. She is magnificent and mesmerizing, using many camouflage tricks to avoid predators and to catch her own prey. 
And this is how she works, this incredible creativity to deceive. An octopus is essentially a snail that's lost its shell in evolution. Very fragile, liquid, soft animal that relies on tremendous intelligence. And this is what is so intriguing about the film. Octopuses are invertebrates. They don't have the features we've been taught to associate with animal intelligence. They live only a few years. They are solitary animals. They don't parent their offspring and hand down knowledge. They are about as far away on the evolutionary tree from us mammals as you can get. We have to go back 600 million years to find our common ancestor, which was nothing more than a simple worm a few millimeters long. Since they've evolved separately from us vertebrates, their anatomy is completely different from ours. They have no hard parts except for a small beak, similar to a parrot's. They have three hearts. Their blood is blue because it uses copper to transport oxygen, not the iron hemoglobin system that we have. And their brain? The octopus brain is arranged around its esophagus. So yes, the esophagus runs right through the middle of their brain. But they do have a large brain relative to their body size and complex behavior, both hallmarks of animal intelligence. If an octopus is intelligent, so what does that mean? Does that mean that intelligent life evolved twice on Earth, two different ways? And what does it mean to think like an octopus? To get some octopus questions answered, I spoke with Roger Hanlon. Roger Hanlon is the author of Cephalopod Behavior and senior scientist at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. What do you think of the narrator's observations of the octopus's behavior? Well, first, I think the narrator was a very astute observer and give him a huge amount of credit for that. He had a lot of patience and he had the motivation to do it. The motivation was not initially biology, but it became that in the end. The patience was the keenest thing and good observing capabilities, partly because of his background in filmmaking. I will say that his interpretation was not scientific, but his observations were really keen and very intuitive and illuminating. So I'm really impressed by what he did, and I'll point out that his abilities for holding his breath and freediving, which I've done a lot of, were really impressive. So overall, it was a quite a grand show. I was impressed by what he did and how he did it. The narrator said something really dear to my heart. He said, then you have to start thinking like an octopus. He's absolutely spot on. We have been saying this and thinking this and doing this for decades because you need to get yourself into the sensory world of that animal. That's why diving is so important and doing work in the laboratory can be insufficient. In the laboratory, you're in your sensory environment. When you're diving and you're underwater, you're in their sensory environment. This documentary did a marvelous job of bringing that out and describing it. He brings up the idea of appreciating the gentleness uh, of what's going on in the water. Well, 
can't say that nature is gentle, but there is a gentleness to the kind of an environment when you're in it as a human. And I think he brought a lot of attention to some of the, you know, the beauty of it all. Yeah, he certainly did. I would have no idea how they could capture so much action underwater. What did you yes, think of that? Yes, the cinematography is is very well done. It was fun for me to watch the documentary because I know so much that's going on in the background and how they get the footage because I've done so much of this. They did a really professional, fine job of that, and they're really, you know, they should be commended for that very much so. I agree with you that it was a beautifully done production. The natural environment of South Africa, the coastline, where I have dived quite a bit, is absolutely stunningly beautiful. It's kind of like Big Sur, California. It is a really gorgeous place, and so I was really impressed uh, by that. Were any of these behaviors surprising to you? Well, I was surprised by some of the behaviors. Going down free diving, he observed a really impressive range of behaviors that we've generally seen most of them before, but some of them were a little different and unique. For example, this beautiful scene where the octopus just gathers up adjacent shells and rocks and pulls them all over its body with its eight arms and hundreds of suckers. We call that masquerade. And in this case, it looks like just a rock with shells on it. And so it's not identifiable as a prey item. And that is a very cool trick that we know about. And we've seen octopuses do variations of that, but I haven't seen that exact one. So I thought that was really cool. It was so beautiful. What about their desire to engage? Have you experienced this in the wild, and what do you make of it? They are very, very curious animals. And when they're curious about something, how do they figure out what it is? They do have good eyes, although they're colorblind. Their eyes can see polarized light, so what we and other things look like in the polarization field, we can't quite figure out. But more importantly, the octopus is an animal with very keen sense of taste and touch, far more so than humans are. So the octopus, to really investigate something like an approaching diver or any object that comes near it, will reach out with an arm. One arm out of eight is expendable, so that's a pretty good tactic right away. And each of the suckers has more than 10,000 neurons that are there, partly to control the grasping and the suction, but also to figure out the texture and the taste of what it's touching. And that information is transmitted back to the animal to make a decision about what it is that it's looking at and now touching. You've written about the cephalopod skin. Can you explain what is unique about cephalopod skin as compared to other animals capable of camouflage? It's the diversity of appearances and the speed of change. This is some of the most beautiful skin on planet Earth. Now, I know some listeners are thinking, I've seen a dead squid in the grocery store, and it really looks ugly. But a living <laughs> skin is absolutely the opposite. It is glistening. It's beautiful. It's got the full color spectrum. And when you look at it in detail, it, would, it looks like the best cosmetics you could ever have. So the animals... Within milliseconds, an eye blink, 200 milliseconds, the animals can change the pigmented pattern and the reflective aspects of the skin. This is the only animal group we know of on planet Earth that can change its skin in three dimensions from smooth as glass to as bumpy as you can get. 
this gives them two amazing capabilities. Number one, when the animal camouflages, they have to get the 3D texture right to blend in with the background, otherwise they will stand out. Second of all, when they have to swim away from a predator, all that bumpiness creates hydrodynamic drag, and so they pull all the bumps down to make smooth skin so that they slip through the water more rapidly. It is really quite impressive to see them switch that back and forth, and they can do that again in about one second. The brain in the, well, the nervous system of an octopus is very delocalized. Do scientists think that one of the reasons that the octopus has so many camouflages and they're so rapidly changing is because of the location of the nervous system? Is that related? Well, yes and no. Basically, an octopus, they have a quite a massive central brain with over 30 distinct lobes and hundreds of millions of neurons. So this is, first of all, a very complicated brain. The octopus, the majority of the neurons are outside of the brain. They're distributed throughout the body, the arms, the suckers, and the skin. And so sometimes I glibly call their skin electric because it is controlled directly from the central brain straight out to each individual pigment spot in the skin. You cannot make anything faster in a biological living system than direct neural control. In addition, at the base of each of the eight arms, there's what we might call a small satellite brain. Now I'm stretching the neurobiological term here, but you get the idea that there's an aggregation of nerve fibers that coordinate some of the information of each individual arm. And so some of the capabilities of the arm, especially its movement and the sensing capabilities of the suckers, seem to be controlled partly by the individual arms. So we and others are trying to figure out how independent is each individual arm and how are the eight arms coordinated by that central computer we call a brain. Wow. We have a lot to learn on that one. That's a really vexing, very tough neuroscience question. Would you say that the octopus represents a different way to create intelligence? Is that a fair statement? I have described the complicated nervous system and the complex behavior and the strange arrangement of their body and their coloration capability as a form of intelligence. And I say that carefully because intelligence is a very tough human term to deal with. It's not appropriate to describe an octopus. But the idea is that Camouflage is a very complicated process in which there's a lot of decision-making going on in the brain, and most of this is controlled visually by the animal picking up different visual cues in a very complicated background. Don't forget that coral reefs and kelp forests are among the most complex visual environments on the planet, land or sea. So the animals are assessing all of that huge amount of information, making decisions in different parts of the brain, and then orchestrating the change in the skin, which involves millions of spots in the skin and reflectors and all those skin bumps. And that requires a lot of decision-making. So it's a very intricate, complicated system, and in itself does to me and some of my colleagues represent a strange form of, quote, intelligence, unquote. More importantly, what we have to do now as a community of scientists is to look at the actual structure 
of that cephalopod brain and really prove or disprove whether or not its architecture is fundamentally different from the vertebrate brain structure. And that work has not been done yet. If it turns out to be architecturally different, then we have only the second case of the evolution of intelligence and complex behavior on planet Earth. That's a very profound statement, but it's the kind of big questions that drive nerd biologists like me and my colleagues <laughs> every day to try and understand because, you know, biology is so beautiful, but it's so complex and it's something to marvel at. So let's just see where that takes us so we can understand life on Earth a little better. If you're just tuning in, we're reviewing the movie My Octopus Teacher with Roger Hanlon, a diving biologist who studies cephalopod behavior. This is KGNU's How on Earth. I'm Jill Shong. What goes through her mind? What's she thinking? Does she dream? If she dreams, what does she dream about? We've all heard of REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. Yeah. We showed REM sleep in a cuttlefish. And there are videos around of some of my colleagues of REM-like sleep in an octopus. And what does REM-like sleep look like in, in a cuttlefish? Well, what happens is the eye just starts jerking all around, moving within its socket. And then all the color patterns and body patterns of the skin all start flickering and changing. But guess what? They don't make any sense. Just like dreams don't make any sense. We can read all of the body patterns and color patterns of an octopus or cuttlefish. We know what they all are. We've studied them uh, extensively. And we don't see those normal patterns in the REM sleep. We see strange sequences that are always weird. And it's, you know, it's a lot like humans where your dreams don't make any sense when you wake up and try to reconstruct them. It just opens up the door to other things and an octopus or cuttlefish that look a lot like so-called advanced invertebrates like primates and ourselves. What have you observed from octopuses either in the wild or in captivity with the use of tools? Well, tool use is controversial among experimental scientists. The, the data for it are not very good or repetitive or compelling. It's the field observations are very suggestive. So, yes, there's definitely things like uh, octopus marginalis, which is in the Indo-Pacific, and it will go along in these open sand plains, and it will find halves of coconut shells. And the octopuses will take uh, one half of it and pull it up, and they'll take the other half of the coconut shell, and they'll pull themselves inside the two halves and close it up. That's clever. It looks like tool use, and I think it probably is to some initial or primitive degree. Does that constitute tool use? Sort of. You know, to someone who studies great apes, it's not very impressive. But it is some form of tool use, and I think it's sort of on the road to maybe more sophisticated tool use in the future, but at the moment I would consider it sort of a nascent capability. Okay. What about its playfulness? Do you think that that was an apt observation, was that they are playful? No, I don't. 
<laughs> and let me explain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, such a blunt answer. Uh, I've been thinking about play in these animals for a long time. Uh, there are some colleagues in the in the field of cephalopod biology who think that these animals play, but the the data are not there. Um, the good suggestions they're few and far between. I've kept uh, many octopuses in the laboratory over the years. We've cultured more than 20 species through the life cycles. We've seen young ones and old ones. We've provided all kinds of objects in their tanks. But more importantly, out in nature, there really isn't time to play for an octopus or a squid because these animals are right in the middle of the food chain. They are what I will glibly call a soft hunk of protein swimming around in the ocean that every predator is trying to get. It's the perfect meal. <laughs> and do you really have time to be out in the open and to play around when your soft body can be attacked by so many predators? It doesn't make a lot of sense to a diving biologist. More importantly, we haven't actually seen an octopus be out and just do what looks like play. Yes, there's a scene in the movie where the arms are flashing up off and on, and there's a school of fish nearby. I wouldn't call it play because that same octopus could have been responding to that school of fishes that was flashing down near it. I've actually seen that elsewhere. But the animal might have been responding to the cameraman. Everyone forgets underwater right. you're filming this for TV, right. and you've got one or more cameramen or camera women around, and they're filming, and they got bright lights on, and sometimes the octopuses respond to that. So that wasn't a, a that wasn't a convincing example in the film. Now you know the narrator may have seen this more often than he mentioned in the television program. So maybe there's something to it. Do I and my colleagues buy it? No, for the most part we don't, because we just have never seen it with so many examples from our fieldwork in particular. So sorry okay. about that. Oh no, that's okay. How do scientists find and track octopuses in the wild, given that they are so masterful at disguise? Trying to find a camouflage octopus on a coral reef or a kelp forest, when it's in its camouflage pattern and not moving, is nearly impossible. So what we do is, for those species that litter their dens with food remains, we look for their dens, or any kind of den or hole we see in the substrate, we always use a little flashlight and check to see if there's an octopus home. And if it's a potential home about the right size and shape, we'll put a little marker on it, like a small balloon, and we'll come back and check it in the morning, evening, and afternoon until we find an animal. So that's basically how we find the animals. And here we utilize citizen science to a high degree. We get volunteer divers to go with us, and we search for the animals. And a lot of these citizen scientists, divers who are good photographers, a lot of them are bird watchers. They're very astute observers, and they're good at finding animals. So we will do a field work, and we will have 10 to 15 volunteers looking for animals. We also utilize local guides who are familiar with the animals. Unfortunately, some of those guides know those animals because they fish them, but they certainly know how to find them. So anything we can do to find the animals on a field trip, which is usually time-limited and expensive, uh, we'll do that. So we can find the animals, but if we're lucky enough and we're out in the open and one starts moving or 
jumps on a prey organism and it catches our attention, then we lock on to it. And we don't take our eyes off it because as soon as you do, you lose it. Wow. Where is your favorite place in the world to dive? Oh, well, I've got about five of them. The Cayman Islands, especially the Little Cayman, one of my favorites. Vigo, Spain, which is northwest Spain, which is cold North Atlantic, is a great spot because it's loaded with octopus and cuttlefish. I, I really love working in the Indo-Pacific. I've done several big trips to Indonesia to study the mimic octopus and the flamboyant cuttlefish. Um, Australia is another favorite spot where the giant Australian cuttlefish is in the south of Australia. And the Palau Islands in western Micronesia, these are all areas that are very beautiful habitats, and they have a lot of cephalopods, and there's shallow water, which makes them amenable to long-term study. When you start doing deep dives, your time is hugely limited. That's not very conducive to doing long-term behavioral types of studies. So that's uh, just a, a quick <laughs> list of favorite spots. These are spots where, you know, I've been going around the world, diving in different sites, looking for animals and good study sites for 45 years, and those are among some of my favorites because they've allowed us to find animals relatively quickly and really get some good long-term studies in. It's very fascinating. Uh, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us about this. That was Roger Hanlon. We've been reviewing the hit documentary film, My Octopus Teacher, the story about a man who becomes acquainted with an octopus in a sea forest off of South Africa and is changed by this experience. She'd made me realize just how precious wild places are. What she taught me was to feel that you're part of this place, not a visitor. That's a huge difference. You can learn more about the African Sea Forest at seachangeproject.com. You can listen to this episode, Octopus Wild, at howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show, Octopus Wild, was produced and engineered by me, Jill Shong, with help from Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Yo-Yo Ma and the Sea Change Project website. We thank Roger Hanlon and we link to his research group and the Sea Change Project at howonearthradio.org. You can follow us on Twitter at howonearth. Let us know your thoughts at the comment line, 303-447-9911. With KGNU in Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins, I'm Jill Shong.